0: Welcome to the Semper Reformata Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy, for his great love for with he loved us, even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with christ by grace ye are saved wherefore remember that ye being in time past gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands that at that time Ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made now by the blood of Christ. I saw a post on Facebook the other day, someone had asked the question, if you were stranded on a desert island, and all you were allowed to bring with you was one single book from the Bible. After all, remember, the Bible is a library of books, not just a single book. So which book would you bring if you were stranded on a desert island? was interested to read some of the comments below and some of the answers. Proverbs. Psalms, of course. Romans featured a lot. Someone even mentioned Colossians. Well, needless to say, I didn't take part in the discussion. There was no praise. There was no point in me getting involved. But I think I might have said Ephesians. And I think if I was to confine that to just one chapter of ephesians then it would have to be ephesians chapter two it's an amazing concise account of the works of god in salvation and i think it would bring great comfort and great help to anyone who was lonely and isolated reading about my personal conversion and yours too about how and why it happened how god brought us as individuals from death to life in verses 11 down to verse 22 paul's nuanced presentation of redemption changes slightly it teaches us a little bit more about our relationship to god not just as individuals who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and brought into God's kingdom, but about our place in God's overall redemptive plan. He's already taught us that God has a plan. If you look back to chapter 1 and verse 10, you'll remember that we read there that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. God has a plan. And that plan is to bring everything together in Christ. Let me make this absolutely clear so that there is no one in any doubt. There will be no one in heaven without Jesus. Absolutely no one. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's decisive. There is no other way to heaven but through the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 11 we had a stumbling block. A problem. Not an unforeseen problem in the sight of God, of course. It's this part of the verse. This verse 11 where it says that ye are called on circumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. You see, in God's saving plan in the Old Testament, his redemptive work is demonstrated to the nations through his choosing and his redemption of a small unworthy people group slaves. They were called Israel. It was this little people group, this small nation, who experienced his mercy, who were given the law, who were taught how to live in a manner that pleased the God who had redeemed them. It was Israel who learned how to worship him in holiness, all of their rituals of worship pointing forward to a coming redeemer pointing to the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. It was to Israel that the covenants were given, wherein God promised that he would be their God and they would be his people. And in token of that, they were sealed with an outward mark, the sign of circumcision, the cutting away of sinful flesh. It was to Israel that the promised Messiah would come. He would come in their mind to lead them to prosperity and to peace and to everlasting life. Now, of course, we must say very forcefully that not everyone in the nation of Israel was a godly man or woman. There were many, probably the majority, who were rebellious sinners, who were covenant breakers, And by the time of Jesus, the religion of Israel had descended into a religion of dead works, to Pharisaism, a legalistic attempt to keep the law which placed an intolerable burden upon the Jews as they at that time had become known. Now here's the problem. The Jews had a very high degree of spiritual snobbery. They looked upon what God had done for them as a nation as placing them above other nations. They looked down upon the Gentiles. Verse 11 again, let's look at it. They called them the uncircumcision. And you can almost hear them saying that with curled up lips and with contempt in their voices. These Gentile dogs, these unclean people, these people who have the filthy flesh still upon them, they are called the uncircumcision. They are steeped in their filth, and the Jews want nothing to do with them. We'll look a little bit more at this next week. But these Gentiles are trusting Christ. And Paul's writing to them in Romans chapter 10 and verse 12. And he's saying there, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no difference between Jew and Greek. These Gentiles are being brought into God's kingdom. They're not being brought in to replace the Old Testament Israel, God's true people, not to be confused with the national Israel or the Jews of Jesus' day, but they are being engrafted into Israel like branches being engrafted onto a vine. Here's Romans chapter 11, verse 16. Take a moment just to read it to you. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off... And then thy being a wild olive tree wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches, but if thy boast thy boastest not the root but the root thee. Thou wilt say then The branches that were broken off that I may be grafted in But because of unbelief, they were broken off. So there's a picture of Israel as being an olive tree. And because of unbelief, it has been pruned. And these new branches have been grafted into the tree. Now, how can this happen? How can God bring these two disparate elements together? What is our place in God's great eternal story of redemption? that's what Paul's going to talk about in verse 11 down to verse 22. And over the next couple of weeks, God's willing, we'll be exploring it. Tonight, what I want to do is to look at verse 11 down to verse 13. And I want to see two things. And the first of those is a very critical, a very crucial command that's given to us. Verse 11 begins, wherefore, remember. Now the emphasis right throughout chapter 1 and right up to this point has been that we contribute nothing to our salvation. That we are dead, so we're unable to make a decision. And we're lost, so we're unable to find God. And we are utterly depraved sinners, so we have no inherent goodness that might commend us to God. We are in rebellion against God. We do not have any faith with which to appropriate his grace and his mercy. Our only response to God's saving work in Christ is to surrender, to stop our struggle, so that the divine rescuer does his work unhindered. So in every verb in these verses, God is active and we are passive. God is working. We are the recipients of his work, his labor. We are his workmanship, as we saw last time, until now. Now we're told there is something we must do. Not something that we do to earn our salvation, but something that we're to do in response to our salvation and i'm going to suggest to you this evening that as christian believers this is something that is absolutely vital in two respects we are to remember something i think the first thing that we're to remember is how the lord has provided for us in his gracious providence how he has kept us over the years Um, Think what these Ephesian Christians had in their memories and what they would look back at and what they would remember. They would remember when Paul first visited at Ephesus, when he discovered that there were professing believers there who knew little of Christian truth, who had never heard of the Holy Spirit, an indication that they were deficient in their understanding of the Trinity, an essential doctrine. They would remember what happened when Paul laid hands on them, when they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began witnessing for Christ. They would remember the labours of Paul in the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, how he preached in their synagogue, and then inevitably when he had been expelled from there and it was no longer available, how he had rented out the schoolroom of Tyrannus and taught there, preaching in the heat of the day, and then after two years going on mission trips around the surrounding towns and villages. And they would remember how Paul had mightily used Paul in prayer and in intercession, how God had answered those prayers and acknowledged his faithfulness, how many sick people had been healed, how many emotional problems had been cured, how many demons had been cast out, how many of those who worked in what was called the curious arts, diviners and sorcerers and magicians and fortune tellers and necromancers had come and they had piled up their books and enchantments and made a massive bonfire out of them. And repenting of their sins, they had turned to Christ for salvation. And they'd remember the terrible riot organized by one of the local tradesmen who saw his market for false idols, pathetic little false gods, trinkets, of no spiritual value of the soul, crashing down into the dust as the powerful preaching of the gospel would release souls from bondage. That's what they would remember. They would remember all of those things. And like the Old Testament Israel, in First Samuel 7 and verse 12, they would say, Ebenezer, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. What's that got to do with us? You see, these Ephesians had memories of God's gracious intervention in their lives. Can I ask you what memories you have? Hasn't the Lord guided you and protected you throughout life? Sometimes we face difficulties in life. We tend to forget the past faithfulness of God and we look at the difficulties and the problems. But look back tonight. Look back and you will see the joy of victory. You will see the presence of the loving Saviour who promised that he would never leave you and forsake you. Look back at the faithful prayers perhaps of loving parents. Fathers and mothers who sat you on their knee and taught you the ways of the Lord and taught you the basics of the Christian faith in the catechism. Faithful pastors who expounded God's word. Faithful teachers in the Lord's house. Sabbath school teachers, evangelists, people in our early days pointing us to the Saviour. Blessed meetings when we knew the presence of God in the ministry of his word. Perhaps you remember a day when the conviction of sin was so great upon us that we wept and mourned under its awful burden and its weight, the weight of guilt and shame. and Perhaps a day when you realised for the first time that when Christ died at the cross, he died for me. And as a result of that enlightenment, you remember a day when you surrendered your life to him and accepted him as Lord and Savior. Can't you remember those things? Because I think it's important for Christian believers to continually bring those things before our memory, that we might render proper thanks unto the Lord for what he has done. But the second thing that we are to remember, especially that these Ephesians are to remember, is not just how the Lord has graciously dealt with them in providence, but to remember where they were brought from and where they are now. Verse 12 tells us that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Christians at Ephesus are to think right back to the time before they knew the Lord as Saviour. To think back to their pagan days when they were living unrestrained, immoral, hell-bound lives. I again suggest to you that this is very practical advice, especially when we come to worship and perhaps more especially before we come around the Lord's table. It is good to think of how the Lord has delivered us, what he has delivered us from, so that we are Deeply grateful for his rescue. Psalmist in Psalm 40. And verse 2 says, he brought me up also out of an horrible pit. Out of the merry clay. And set my feet upon a rock and establish my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth. Even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust. As far as the Ephesians were concerned, they were Gentile pagans. Look at how Paul describes their condition before they were converted. He tells us in verse 12 that they were without God. In fact, he tells us twice. He says at the beginning of the verse, you were without Christ. And then at the end of the verse, he says you were without God. They were without God. How awful is that? There is this huge deficit in their lives. They're living pointless, meaningless existences, living unrestrained, immoral lives. They are created with the express purpose of living in God's presence and enjoying that presence forever and ever. And yet they were without God. Without God is just one word. Atheos word where we get the word atheist. A godless stranger. Cut off from the purpose for which they were created. They were without God. But Paul also reminds them here that they were in the world. They were without God in the world. Now you think that's no surprise. We all have to live in the world, don't we? We all have to live in, in this current, present age in which we live, but living in this world is stressful. And I put it to you that it will get more stressful as this current age comes to a close, as this world descends more and more into apostasy and chaos as we head towards the day of resurrection, and as this end of the age draws ever nearer and nearer i know that there are people uh, christian believers who think that the church will be taken out of the world before the world becomes so great that it drops into unbearable tribulation there's no sign of that in the bible christians are being warned that we are to face this dreadful adversity and right now, this adversity is ramping up. The technocrats of this world are preparing right now for their authoritarian one world government system. The beast system that will usher in the new world order. That will bring in a new worldwide currency. This programmable central bank digital currency that will control every aspect of your life. What you can say, what you will think, it will be used to curb Any form of criticism of those who govern over us, it's already happening. The unelected prime minister of this country is already pressing for it. The Bank of England has set up a committee to bring it into being. It's happening. And the world is growing more and more and more hostile towards not only Christians, but the individual freedoms of every man and woman. How are you going to cope without Jesus? In the Bible, the world is more than just the political and social environment in which we live. This world is depicted in the Bible as being the arena of satanic influence. I think we're seeing that that part of creation which is opposed to God and His kingdom. A place that self centeredness and pride is the religion of the day. The enthronement of self in that place in our life that God rightly demands. This is Pride Month, I'm told. The month of the open glorification and celebration. Of sexual perversion and sin. Walked into a big national supermarket the other day. Right at the door they have a pride display. It's everywhere. It's in medical practices and libraries. Sadly it's in schools. It's all pervasive. It's a deadly sin pride the arena of satanic influence it's the arena of false worship Ephesus is noted famous throughout the world for its pagan temple the temple of Diana a place of institutionalized false worship that was being promoted by the state it was the established religion of its day, we have established religions this day as well the established religion that follows the cultural line the established religions that say what the culture wants to hear. The established religions that lead their adherents into compliance with the social and moral norms of the day. These, uh, this is the world and these citizens of Ephesus are in the world without God. What an awful situation. I think we do well to remember the deep blackness of this world. It's certain future. It's not climate change that threatens the planet. It's the ongoing descent into sin that will eventually, in God's own time, bring it under the sure and certain judgment of God. And let's go back to our text. They're without God. And they're living in this awful world. Here's the worst bit. They have no hope. That time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. How hopeless was their situation. There they are, outside all the blessings of God's covenant people. They're cut off from the hope of a messiah. Cut off from a covenant relationship with God. Cut off from a sense of belonging. Cut off from being included in God's great plan that will extend well beyond this life. They really are aliens. Of course, there was always the possibility that they could convert to Judaism, proselytize themselves, join the Jewish religion of their day, but that would only make them circumcised in the flesh, not in the heart. Their heart would be unaffected, their sins just as real. They would come under the convicting power of the law of God and their hopelessness would increase. What's the point of converting from one dead religion to another? There are still some people who drift around looking for a church that can save them. So these Ephesians, they have no hope. They have no hope in this world for they're without God. They have no hope in their religion. They have no hope in eternity. They have no hope for their past ever to be forgiven. They have no hope in the providence of God. They're without God. And they're in the world. And they're without hope. And then Paul does it again. Do you remember what he did in chapter 2, verse 4? In chapter 2 and verse 2 and 3, he had brought us down to the very depths as he described our individual total depravity and sin. Do you remember how he talked about us as as unconverted people before we knew the Lord? He talked about in time past, we'd walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He talked about how we were disobedient people, disobedient against God and obeying our father, the devil. And then he talks about how we're following our hearts. The lusts of our flesh and fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. And he talks about how, by nature, we are under the condemnation and the wrath of God already. And then in verse 4, he comes in with this, but. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. He brings us right down to the very depths of despair, telling us that we are the most awful, pitiful, wretched, sinful creatures until God steps in and rescues us. And he does it again. There we are in the world. Atheists, no hope without God living in this awful, dreadful, all this awful world that's progressing into chaos and and into, into oblivion under the judgment of God. And we have no hope for the future. But now, says Paul, Verse thirteen, but, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You see, that's it, isn't it? That's the point. That's what Paul's trying to do here. He's bring us right down to the depths of despair in our memories so that we realise that we were unable to help ourselves. And then he tells us, remember this. Remember how God came to your rescue. Remember how he came, like the psalmist said, and he found you in that awful, horrible pit trapped in the Mary clay, And he plucked you out of that dreadful situation and he set your feet upon a rock, the rock Christ Jesus. Wherefore, remember. Remember where you were. Remember your lostness and your hopelessness. Remember how you were despairing at the situation of this world until God intervened by sending his Son to die for sinners, Remember how Jesus brought hope into your life. Remember how he turned your meaningless, anti-God existence upside down when life ceased to be a hopeless end, it became endless hope. So what have we learned? Take time to remember every day stop and think of what the lord has done for you remember god's blessings in the past remember how he has held you in the palm of his hand right throughout your life be able to say, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. He's brought me safely to this point. And because of that, be assured that he will never leave you or forsake you until you are eternally safe. And most of all, every single day thank him for what he has redeemed you from, from the deep pit from whence you were dug, The world and its hopelessness. Be grateful for His saving work in your life. Wherefore, remember, it's a command.